0: Belong, become, believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The message for April 23rd, 2023 is called the Meet cue The speaker is Laura Holland and the location is Clap Auditorium, Mount Sequoia in Fayetteville, Arkansas. As um, Alex mentioned, I did realize as I was preparing for this weekend that it was kind of a heavy topic, and we're going to be talking about themes, and one of the themes I realized about myself is that I tend to talk about heavy topics, which really begs the question, are the topics heavy, or is that just how I decide to approach them? I don't know. The jury's still out, but I'm just going to put that out there for y'all to, y'all to think about. My name is Laura Holland, and I'm a member of the teaching team here at Grace, and we are going to talk... Today, about the meet-cute. So in the classic romantic comedy, When Harry Met Sally, each scene of the times that Harry and Sally meet is started with an interview of a series of couples who tell the story of how they met. So fun fact about this, though the people telling these stories are, in fact, actors, the stories they're telling are real these are real stories that have been submitted about how different couples met in film we refer to these moments as the meet cute and this is defined as the charming first encounter between two characters that leads to the development of a romantic relationship it's their relational origin story and though they're all unique patterns emerge there's a knowing an effort was made, whether it was riding an extra nine stories up in an elevator or crossing the dance floor. Once they've met, each one's trajectory is changed in line with the other. Even when distance, circumstances, other people get in the way, ultimately, they didn't forget one another. And it wasn't always easy but they were together in the end. In our teaching team meeting when we were discussing this weekend, Betty commented that our scripture today is essentially the meat cute between God and Israel. In other words, this verse marks the beginning of a beautiful relationship between God and the people of Israel, not just the patriarchs or a select set of individuals, but the community. And as with the story shared by the couples in the movie that began to reveal relational patterns, we see this emergence of themes in the story of Scripture as well. Last week, John mentioned several of the themes that we'll be exploring um, as we are going through the story of Exodus in this series. And he set up a scaffolding of how we will be discussing it throughout the series, in part by continuing to ask ourselves two guiding questions. The first being, what were they, the people of Israel, being delivered from? And what were they both being delivered to? Likewise, as we listen, we should be considering what we're being delivered from and delivered to, because it stands to reason that if God's story is continuing with us, these same themes are going to be continued with us. Since this week is the first in the series where we are in the story of Exodus, I'm going to take the liberty to be pretty literal when answering the question, What are they being delivered from? In the learning guide each week, we're going to be including scripture passages that um, are there for reference or for context. They go along with the dedicated teaching passage. Because sometimes, like this week, the central teaching passage is one. Verse. And so we want to be able to provide that larger holistic picture of where this falls, and also to help us from cherry picking and deciding that it means what we want it to mean because we have taken it outside of the larger story. One of those context scriptures this week is Genesis 47, 13 through 26, which tells the story of the severe famine, which we're told led to the land of Egypt, and land of Canaan wasting away. It became so bad that after several years, as we read in verse 18, Master, it's no secret to you that we are broke. Our money's gone, and we've traded you all of our livestock. We've nothing left to barter with but our bodies and our farms. What use are our bodies and our land if we stand here and starve to death in front of you? Trade us food for our bodies and our land. We'll be slaves to Pharaoh and give up our land. All we ask is seed for survival, just enough to live on and keep the farms alive. So that was the message version. But you can hear the desperation, right? They have reached the end where what they are begging for is just enough to keep them alive. And this plea is accepted. And the people of Israel become enslaved under the control of Pharaoh. But while enslaved in Egypt, we're told that the people of Israel become fruitful and they increase rapidly in number and they become incredibly strong. And this wording, that they're fruitful and they multiply, is a callback to the creation story. And it's a nod to the recurring theme of creation and God's blessing within it. Being extremely strong, fruitful, and multiplying was a blessing for Israel but it was a huge problem for Pharaoh. He didn't want the Israelites to grow in number or strength. It was threatening. Their agreement was that the people of Israel would be the Pharaoh's slaves in return for food, but it wasn't made with the understanding or the idea that they might become strong enough to overtake the people of Egypt, that they might be able to go against them. So Pharaoh needed them to be subservient, for his plan to continue working, for things to continue be ordered in a way that benefited him. So to help ensure this, Pharaoh issued several decrees. The first one was, the Egypt foreman over the Israelites to oppress them with hard labor. And the more the Israelites grew in number and in strength, the greater the resentment and the oppression from the Egyptians grew in relation. The second one was that Hebrew midwives were told to allow only daughters born to the people of Israel to survive. These women did not follow the order, however, marking one of the first recorded times that Pharaoh's structure and orders were challenged. They claimed they couldn't make it in time. Because of all this work, the Hebrew women are just so strong and they give birth so quickly we can't make it. So they're making stories up, but they're like, sorry, not our bad, can't do it. And so in response, Pharaoh issues a third decree. And in this one, he's like, okay, since the order to the midwives didn't work out, forget about getting rid of male heirs at birth, just do it now. Just take them, toss them in the river. Obviously, not a great thing. And unless the movie The Prince of Egypt was in heavy rotation in your home, I'm gonna guess that this last decree is the one that we're most familiar with because it sets us up for Moses' origin story. And in this, we learn that Moses' mother, sister, and Pharaoh's daughter ultimately work together, in effect, thwarting this third decree, in part, And it started by putting Moses in a basket and sending him down the river, which is another literary connection, an allusion to Noah, who was in the story of Noah and the Ark, which was another time where God named one person whose role was liberation, liberation for the people of Israel, and was able to overcome the threat of water. So, A lot of of calling back, recurrence of themes and ideas here. So now we're to our central verse for today, which is Exodus 2, 23. And as Alex read, that is, during this long period of time, which was about 40 years, the king of Egypt, the Pharaoh, died, and the Israelites groaned because of the slave labor. They cried out, and their desperate cry because of their slave labor, went up to God. So this is previewing next week's some, but we learn in the following verses that God listened to their groanings. God remembered God's covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob, the patriarchs. God saw what was going on with Israel, and God understood. I love how the story of this meat cute story of God and the people of Israel coming together lines up with the couple's stories from when Harry met Sally. These themes are, are showing up here as well. So many of the stories in the film started with unknowing. and we're told here God understood. God knew. In our verse, we're told that the Israelites groaned because of their slave labor. Theologians who have studied this way more extensively than I have say that this phrasing is meant to suggest that before this turning point, they were, in essence, silent. So it's possible that they just took this oppression, slavery, the hard labor, just took it on the chin. They were just silent. But it's also possible, probably more so, that they were silenced. Not just that they were silent, they were silenced. They didn't speak up to those in power because it would have hurt them. Who would have listened to the most lowly, the bottom of the wrong caste, the people with no agency and no autonomy? So why cry out when that crying out would be in vain? But the Pharaoh dies and there is a moment of instability. The structure that they have been working under is unstable just a little bit, and the Israelites think maybe, just maybe, their groans will be heard. So they groan, and they cry out desperately. Cries, it's important to note, that weren't directed to anyone in particular. This was a moment, though, where they give the nearly impossible a chance. And God hears, and God listened. God remembered, God saw, and God understood. Within the story of Scripture, there are repeated themes, these repeated stories that they sort of call back to one another, the ones that happened before. And each story reveals just a little bit more. So with hindsight, as we're reading the stories of scripture, we can apply what has happened a few stories down the line to the ones that came before it. But when you're living through it, you don't have that privilege. In our reading today, the people of Israel do not have that privilege. Yet, the move from silence to voicing their pain was world-changing. When they cry out, it changes God, and it moves God from inaction to action. And you've been in the church for any length of time. Chances are good that the plight of the Israelites, their time in the desert, and then finally making it to the promised land, they as a people have probably been used as like the illustration, the example of what can happen ultimately when you trust God. We are able to look back at them as that Example, But we might fail to realize that these Israelite slaves that are desperately groaning have no such stories of God's faithfulness to turn to for strength. They're not able to remember a time before when God's promises were seen for the entire people, and they really have no experiential reason to believe that it's going to be different this time. because... because Again, before this point, God had spoken to individuals and made covenants with the patriarchs. But here we see the beginning of God's relationship with the community. Here we see the people of Israel themselves being the first in this continued expansion of those who come to belong to God. This is the beginning of the meet-cute. One of the recurring themes for which the Israelites provide a time that we can turn to for comfort and strength is that when people cry out, when they break the silence, God listens. We see it here. We also see it in Mark 10 with the story of blind Bartimaeus. I mean, what a way to be known in scripture. Blind Bartimaeus, who's been sitting, begging by the side of the road. And then he heard that Jesus was walking by and he began to shout Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Most rebuked him, but he kept calling out. And what we read is that Jesus heard and listened and saw and understood and healed. And then in Luke 18, we're told the parable of the persistent widow, which Jesus told to the disciples to show them that they should always pray and they should never give up and that when they do that, God will hear them and will see that they get justice quickly. It's this last part, that the justice will come once the silence is broken, that today's verse provides the foundation for. Forcing silence is a weapon. It's a tool used by those in power or authority to subjugate other people. Because when you're silenced, your agency is removed. Your ability to advocate for yourself is removed. And the existing power structures can't be threatened if nobody that is being harmed by it is able to speak out against it. Pharaoh was threatened by the growing number and strength of the Israelites. So he increased their oppression. And we know this isn't an ancient tool. This isn't something that stopped being done We probably have all, if we think back, experienced a time as either the silenced or the silencer, probably both at different times if we are honest with ourselves. But pain that is voiced publicly threatens those in power. Walter Brueggemann writes in his book, Delivered Out of Empire, that pain brought to voice in public speech so that it is heard out loud Promptly rearranges all power realities that are thought to be settled. We can look to modern history too for examples of the power shift that can come when those who have been silenced cry out. Throughout the civil rights movement, we have examples. There's the Montgomery bus boycott in Rosa Parks, the March from Selma, Martin Luther King's Jr.'s dream his children. More recently, I can't breathe. The last words of Eric Garner invigorated the Black Lives Matter movement. Poet Claudia Rankine reminds us, if you don't name what's happening, everyone can pretend it's not happening. But once things are named, they can't be ignored because there's power in the naming. There is power in the crying out and in the growing, The groaning. Maybe you will also grow from this experience. <laughs> These recent examples also remind us, they show us, that even when voiced pain begins to rearrange power realities thought to be settled, it's often not immediate. And we frequently find ourselves crying out against pains that are caused by matters we have already fought against, we've already cried out against, we've worked against, and sometimes we even think that maybe they have been resettled in a way that was good and yet we still find ourselves in a place where we need to cry out. But like the persistent widow demonstrated, continue to cry out, we must. Because as Brueggemann attests, sometimes the cry can be silenced for a while. It does not always prevail. The Exodus narrative, nevertheless, attest the claim that in our faith that the cry cannot be defeated. Another recurring theme is connected to the first, and this is the cry that God hears and understands leads to justice. And justin, justice often looks like chaos coming into order. God's story starts with creation that brings about a perfect order. This part of the story in Exodus that we're looking at today prompts us to examine the theme of moving from chaos to order in several ways. The first is the reminder that God is continually seeking to bring about order. It didn't happen at creation, and now it's just going. We are continually seeing chaos being brought back into order. In Jesus' first sermon, he stated that his mission was to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, healing, and to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And each one of these is an example of moving from both personal and systemic chaos to order. But within this same theme, we also should be asking ourselves, Moving to order for whom? And at what cost? Because if silence is required for order to remain, it's likely not the order that God is seeking to bring about. But our understanding of order, the way we like things to be ordered, often is much different. For example, had you asked Pharaoh, about whether or not he was living in chaos or order, the answer would have been order. It was ordered perfectly for him. It was great. Yet we know that that was not the order that God was desiring. Because when order oppresses and moves more and more people to the margins, when it orders silence or it requires silence to exist, that's not the kind of order that we are discussing here. John spoke about empire last week, and this is one of the markers of empire. John also talked about Christian imagination, and this is where we can see the impact of empire and the impact that it's had on our imaginations around the story of Exodus. If you pay attention, you might find that the way that you are reading or interpreting different parts of it is being impacted by our desire for order, both godly order, and then that tug, the desire for the order of empire. In fact, (laughs) the fact that we are brought to examine this point because of the groaning and crying out of the Israelites is somewhat ironic, maybe even confusing, considering how frequently the same groaning and complaining of the Israelites is used within the church as a cautionary tale as something to pay attention to, like, let's not not be like that. Let's not just groan and complain. Because when the larger story is told, sometimes it has been used to silence legitimate concerns, legitimate things that have been seen and need to be raised as complaints. When I served as a small groups pastor at our church in D.C., One of my responsibilities was to meet with potential leaders to talk through our leadership covenant. And one of the bullet points on our leadership covenant was that we would not gossip or complain, grumble or gossip or complain. And the reason for that was that it could cause dissension within the church. The first couple of times that I read through this, something wasn't sitting right. And then finally, It occurred to me that I hope that the nuance was intended within this, but that there was nuance. Gossiping and grumbling most often are caused out or are born out of the noticing of real issues. We have special insight to things that we're going to see that are a bit askew, that are Bit of chaos, if you will, that we have special insight that we need to bring up. It's gossiping, and it's grumbling, and it's just complaining for the sake of complaining when it is directed to the wrong person, when it is directed to someone just to continue that, to get someone on your side to be upset about the same thing instead of bringing it to someone that can do something about it. I think that it is far more... A direction thing than an action thing. The final theme that we're going to touch on today is that pain is acknowledged as part of the story. The Bible doesn't avoid discussing the hard, painful parts, pain is part of the story. The acknowledgement of pain is part of the story because when we leave out pain points in our history, in our stories, we limit the depth of relationship that we can achieve with each other. We also limit what we can remember about it, what we can learn from it. We're able to pretend that these things never happened. But the crying out and the voicing of pain forces us to acknowledge what is. If you've read or watched any news recently, you have likely seen that there's this drive to remove those those pain points, the times that people have cried out to remove those from our history, from our story. And looking at it through the lens of this, this scripture, it's like they're saying, okay, we weren't able to silence you then, so we're going to silence you now. But God's story celebrates the world change that comes when we cry out. And God's story calls us to remember the pain points. And God's story encourages us to draw together in community making sure we're inviting in those on the margins as we acknowledge the pain we've caused, the pain we've endured, and the lessons that we've learned along the way. Romans 8 is my favorite chapter in scripture, and Romans eight twenty six is a verse that has brought me comfort many times. I love the way the message version states it. It says, meanwhile, the moment we get tired in the waiting, God's Spirit is right alongside, helping us along. If we don't know how or what to pray, it doesn't matter. God's Spirit does the praying in and for us, making prayer out of our wordless sighs and aching groans. In Exodus 2.23, the people of Israel groan and cry out in desperation, and God hears it as their prayer. Because sometimes we know exactly who or what it is that are causing us pain. And we are able to name it. We are able to cry out, call out, and name it. But there are other times that we can't quite put our finger on it. Or there are just so many things going on that we can't name one thing. All we have in us is the ability to sigh, to groan, just to call out. And how wonderful that we know that there is power in calling out in that way too. Because there are times that I have found myself wondering, does my voice matter? If I speak out about injustices I see or have experienced, does it even matter? Why waste my breath? Why be vulnerable and put myself out there for nothing? Maybe you find yourself asking that at times as well. Because when the problems are systemic and those in power don't even acknowledge the harm that their hold on control has, or even worse, just deny it outright, it can seem overwhelming, and I can feel very small reminded at the beginning of Exodus that our experience matters and our pain matters, and that God is moved to action, bringing chaos to order by our cries. Theologian Pete Innes writes, Exodus is a story of the links to which God is willing to go to create for himself a people through whom his plan of universal blessing will one day be realized. These cries launched the meet-cute. These cries brought the whole community into relationship with God. And like all relationships, as we're going to read on, we're going to see, it has its ups and downs. It has its good times, and it has its hard times. It has moments where communication could probably be improved upon. But through it all, we end up together. We've been invited into the family, and we have been tasked with listening for the groans and the cries of our siblings. We can take comfort in knowing God hears and God understands. We can take action knowing that we are God's hands and feet. We should be asking ourselves, whose groans have we been mistaking for overstated complaints? Who have we been silencing? Or whose voice have we taken from them? Whose voice can we help amplify? And in doing so, whose cries do we need to echo, not appropriate, to help them be heard? We probably need to be asking ourselves too, what pain have we been holding on to? possibly because we're believing the lies, that it's just complaining, it's just grumbling, or maybe worse, that it just won't matter anyway. But what cries do we need to release, both to God and to those in our community? And maybe the most important, are we listening? Are we listening for those cries that are ringing out within our community? when the Israelites moved from silence to voicing their pain, the world changed. Do we believe that the same can happen now? As we move into this time of reflection, and the worship team and those serving communion come up, um, I'd like to close with a short prayer, actually. (laughs) Um, So if you will close your eyes and bow your heads with me. God, you have shown yourself to be a God who listens. Give us ears that can hear the groans and the cries of those around us and wisdom and bravery to know how to respond. You're also the God who understands and knows, so help us trust that our pain will be heard. And as the God who comforts, we ask that you're with us in the waiting. You, God, are also the God of justice, so help us to see the chaos you seek to order and to know our role as your hands and feet. Amen. Thank you for listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find more about us online at gracechurchmwa.org. Grace and peace.